This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next Trauma Cast. Before we begin, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant to the Online Education Committee. Today we bring you the largest panel of guests we've ever had to discuss COVID-19 Part 5. What have we learned? As always, everything discussed is everyone's personal view, and we don't represent our institutions. We will have a conversation with the best information we know of right now, today, and understand it may all change tomorrow. We're all learning together, and since I have recently deployed into the medical ICU to help with our COVID surge, I'm looking forward to getting some insight from our experienced guests. Simon Fitzgerald is a volunteer on the Online Education Committee and will be joining us as our next guest moderator. For introduction, Simon, we'll start with you. Tell us who you are, where you work, and what has been your experience with COVID. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Simon Fitzgerald. I'm a trauma surgeon and intensivist at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, the only ICU care I've done for COVID patients in the last couple of months has been either trauma or surgical patients that happen to have COVID. But for two and a half months during the early shift, I was a full-time COVID intensivist uh, in our ICUs and surge ICUs uh, in Brooklyn. Great. Awesome. Uh, a well-known voice of the trauma cast, Matt Martin. Remind everybody who you are. Yeah. Hey, this is Matt Martin. I'm a trauma surgeon now at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego. And what's been your experience with COVID? Uh, pretty similar to Simon. Uh, now it's mostly surgical or trauma patients who have COVID, uh, occasionally managing you know, just a primary COVID in the ICU. And then uh, in, in April, I went to New York for three weeks and uh, worked at Jacoby Medical Center at the, at the height of their COVID crisis. Great. Bilal, would you like to introduce you all? Hey, it's Bilal Joseph, uh, Chief of Trauma at University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, similar to other people, our COVID experience is uh, maintaining the surgical ICU and trauma ICU with COVID patients. And we're taking overflow uh, MICU patients to keep us uh, somewhat distant from the primary COVID patients. But we're heading in a direction to start developing teams to start caring for uh, primary COVID as well, given the most recent surge. And uh, no, sorry, I was just going to say, and a, and, a, and a COVID patient myself, so. And Carrie, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Carrie Yergi. I'm a trauma critical care surgeon, um, and I have been probably since September um, working half-time in the MICU um, at BUMC in Phoenix, um, helped with the tail end of their second wave, and then now I'm, I'm actively working uh, 10 nights a month. Um, with, I guess, the, the third surge, so. Yeah, we'll stop counting surges. <laughs> and uh, Haytham, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm Haytham Kafrani, a trauma surgeon at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And uh, when we first peak, peaked in April, uh, May, and June, our, I transferred completely into an intensivist about 80, 90% of the time and staffed uh, 20-bed ICU that are full of COVID patients. So I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Excellent. Well, Simon, as our guest moderator, I'm going to turn the trauma cast over to you. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that I haven't been doing uh, COVID intensivist uh, work, but uh, in Health and Hospitals Corporation in New York, we're preparing for a major surge. So I anticipate that'll be part of my near future. So I'm also looking forward to this conversation. Um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, I'm just going to get right into it. A lot of enthusiasm for early intubation to try to uh, contain and treat the spread of the virus. 
Um, in New York, I think that was split. Our group was a little bit more uh, likely to use some of the alternative ways of oxygenating high flow nasal cannula and uh, non-invasive ventilation. So that idea has kind of shifted. And I'm wondering uh, where people kind of stand on that uh, in terms of when is it time to intubate and what is the role for things like high flow uh, nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. Uh, Carrie, I think you said that you're uh, actively working in a COVID ICU these days. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's really, um, it's really been interesting to watch because the shift has been very profound. So our, um, our first default modality is high flow. If they need support with tidal volumes, if they're working really hard and are becoming tachypnic, uh, we'll switch people over to BiPAP. But we have had tremendous success with a combination of high flow nasal cannula oxygen and inhaled nitric, as well as self-proning if patients are able to do that. I think we've kind of staved off a, a host of intubations um, using that strategy combined with steroids. We've we've had a, a a fair bit of success for that. And then to to kind of transition that into the second question is when when are we intubating? Um, we really will um, wait really as long as is safe. When patients start becoming hypoxic or developing a respiratory acidosis despite non-invasive measures. Um, when they've essentially clinically failed BiPAP, um, before it becomes an emergency, we will go ahead and, and intubate those folks. But we're really doing everything that we can to avoid that. And now, I think more than in the initial treatment of COVID, we're seeing an awful lot of success with that strategy. And for patients who are on BiPAP or high-flow nasal cannula, is that being done in the ICU or elsewhere in the hospital? So it's institution dependent. Um, at BUMC, there's actually a high risk pulmonary floor where they will do um, lower rates of high flow and then um, BiPAP if they're not requiring high BiPAP settings. Um, and the hospitalists are managing those patients. As they start to get sicker, they will the hospitalists will upgrade those patients to rapid respond them into the intensive care unit, and then we take over. Does anyone else have have a, anything to add or a different perspective? I was just going to say, I do think that it's uh, avoid intubation at all costs, uh, mm -hmm. no matter what. And Carrie's point of the work of breathing, I think, is what drives most of this. I mean, I think as long as you can maintain the work of breathing and we've kind of it's kind of funny how we've changed our mindset to allowing some hypoxia or permissive hypoxia as long as the work of breathing is where it needs to be. And I think, you know, high flow mixed with um the BiPAP is really for the very severe patients is really the, the, the trick because you can still recruit somewhat. You don't recruit as much with the high flow, but you can still maintain, you know, good sats and whatnot. So I think that's kind of where we've kind of come full circle. And I think that would probably in my mind stand as what the standard of care is, is avoid intubation at all costs. Cause once you go down that road, it's a whole different. How hypoxic are you letting them get? Cause I'm, I'm new to this. I've just done three days yeah. of NICU and yeah. It's weird to watch somebody at 86 and everyone's just cool with that. I mean, that's, we do 86 to 88. If it's, but again, I think it's not necessarily just the oxygen. It's really the work of breathing. If you can main, you know, if they're, you know, mentating and they're able to uh, communicate and have a controlled work of breathing, I think that's really, we're comfortable. We're okay. Just letting them be. I don't know what anyone else thinks, but that's kind of where we, we sit. 
Yeah, I, so happy I, would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, Carrie, I, Carrie mentioned, though, just the last thing is, you know, the INO uh, infused into the um, BiPAP or into the high flow has made a, a tremendous uh, difference as well. I think that's the other thing. So inhaled nitric. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I, I think we uh, we've moved to a posture of avoid innovation at all possible and innovate early. <laughs> if that makes sense. And and what I mean by that is clearly the, the posture that some some were advocating initially of innovate everyone, innovate them early. It's a form of infection control as well as therapy, I think, was wrong. And and we know how patients do once they're innovated uh, in large part. So, so I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, high flow is fantastic. Although, you know, again, I, I think every place in New York ran out of high flow circuits very quickly. High flow and self-proning. But the, the don't innovate at any cost approach, I think, also is wrong. Because if you wait until they are crashing from a respiratory standpoint, you are often innovating them as they're coding or as they're about to code. And, and so I think as soon as you start to see significant decline, and I think probably the best marker was mental status. Yeah. You know, if they're, if they're awake and talking and giving you a thumbs up or smiling, you're great. But we would see patients who they start to get a little drowsy and you have to go shake them to wake them up. And we'd say, oh, well, let's keep them on BiPAP a little longer. And that was absolutely a mistake because I'd say we lost the number of patients doing that. Because when, when they go down, they go down hard and fast. Sorry, Sherry. Um, this is Aisham speaking. I just want to say I have to echo what uh, Matt said. I think in the very early days of the pandemic, there was first a lot of unknowns. There was a, a real shortage of PPE and a lot of uh, panic related to the uh, to the unknowns of the disease and how how it gets uh, kind of transmitted to healthcare workers. And I do think there was a trend towards early intubation. But I think the, the right balance is not to avoid intubation at all costs, but to, uh, with appropriate infection control measures, high flow and maybe non-invasive, but don't let them go that the route of the, it's too late, their mental status is gone, or the work of breathing is really un, un, you know, unmanageable. Intubate them right before that. Carrie, did you want to uh, uh, add something else as well? Yeah, I wanted to, to echo what Matt had said. I've had three patients probably in the last almost two months where we waited just till they were on the edge of a cliff and they either were peri-arrest or did in fact arrest. So I just wanted to echo 100%. I think it's a combination of really sound clinical judgment as soon as they lose the ability to protect their airway or they've demonstrated that either from work or breathing or for significant hypoxia that's not responding to high flow or BiPAP, the decision needs to be made then to intubate the patient um, because once they failed, they failed. And if you let it get to a point where they're too late, they they um, 100% echo what Matt said. When they go down, they go down hard and fast. And they are profoundly unstable, almost to the point where it's very difficult to rescue. The only other caveat that I wanted to bring up, um, my and I think our kind of Initial strategy involves high flow at BUMC with inhaled nitric only because, and I'm, I, I might need to ask for more clarification on this, we can't use inhaled EPO or inhaled nitric with um, BiPAP at our institution. I don't know if that's a, um, a pervasive thing, but that's been the strategy for us 
The only other thing that I would say, having done this now for a couple of months, is that a lot of these patients are naive to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And so they end up needing some form of sedative. My personal default in most patients, unless they're bradycardic, um, is Presidex. And we've seen a bunch of success throwing patients on Presidex or little baby doses of benzo if you need to, to get them to tolerate the BiPAP. The only thing that I would say, and again, this is, um, I don't know if this is published, but just our anecdotal experience is a lot of these patients end up with cardiomyopathy and they develop um, bradyarrhythmias. So we've had to be really careful and judicious with both Presidex and Propofol. Just, you know, for from the standpoint of, you know, learning the hard way for a couple of months, I guess. So I think we more or less have consensus that uh, people are very much willing to use high flow nasal cannula, plus or minus uh, nitric oxide and uh, non-invasive positive pressure as long as patient has a good mentation and the work of breathing is reasonable and that they're monitored in such a way so that when that changes, we're in a position to intubate them before they crash. Um, one of the uh, other things that was mentioned was uh, self-proning on uh, awake patients. And that was leading into another question is when are we deciding to prone? And it seems like a lot of people are doing it even before, even before intubation. Does anyone else, uh, Bilal or Matt, uh, want to comment on when you're deciding to uh, prone these patients? You know, this, this disease reminds me of, uh, these morbidly obese patients with hernias that we all like, Oh, just go lose weight and just, uh, you know, don't smoke and, you know, and have all these things. And the reason why I say that is because each patient is very different. And that's one thing about this uh, disease process. I think, uh, that we're, we're going back to some basic things like mental status and physical exam, but, but to the point of self-proning, I mean, there's a lot of patients that cannot tolerate self-proning. They go, you know, you try and you attempt and you push them and they're self-proning, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. They're, they've got a big gut or whatever it may be, and they can't tolerate those positions. And, you know, whether you have them standing or laying or anything you do, I just think it's patient dependent. It really is. I mean, I think there's not one cocktail that just works for everybody. I think you have to tailor your, I think early self-proning is great, but I also think that, you know, can can the patient tolerate and a lot? And I, you know, from what I've seen from both our MICU colleagues and what we've dealt with, it's not easy to self-prone these patients always. But if they can, it's great. Use it. But it's not always with the straight shots. General criteria for proning. Uh, one one is sometimes you'll just rapidly find yourself. You're you're at the you know top of your standard vent setting. So if if you know you're rapidly at a hundred percent and they're still not satting great, you have nowhere to go, that, that should be proning immediately. But then, you know, the, the patient who's just kind of declining, uh, you know, some places use P to F, but that's also dependent on the F. We kind of, when we get to 70% or more FiO2 that we're having to give them, that's when we generally start proning, unless there's some contraindication to it. The other thing about proning is, you know, it's semi-dangerous, and it takes a lot of people. And so now you're putting a lot of people into a COVID room, so you got to have a good supply of PPE, and and at least in New York, Jacoby put together a proning team, and and that was really helpful. when the military showed up with a bunch of people to help, and so a dedicated proning team that does it the same way every time with a checklist uh, was really helpful and decreased the amount of you know dislodged tubes and lines during the process. Yeah, our orthopedic residents became really experts at proning. <laughs> If anybody is looking for the Jacoby checklist, it's actually part of our show notes at east.org for the trauma cast for COVID part four. 
And then we also included a really nice video from St. Joe's on how to do the burrito technique. Um, I want to talk more about how to manage intubated COVID patients, but I wanted to step back first, you know, when uh, these patients started flooding the uh, ERs and ICUs in New York, we were giving everybody hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Um, and the data on that now looks like it was not really helpful. And the uh, most recent New England Journal article on WHO uh, trial results shows that really no benefit for many of the drugs we use, including remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, loponavir, interferon, uh, beta-1A, and we talked a little bit about steroids. There has been some data in support of steroids. Um, what has been the experience of uh, medication for these patients? Uh, them. we haven't heard from you in a minute. Do you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it was fascinating just as people in New York uh, experience. We really start, we peaked one week after New York and we were using hydroxychloroquine uh, on everybody. And now we use it on absolutely nobody. Um, and uh, and I, I do think uh, the only evidence-based answer now is steroids, uh, which we try to use. I do think remdesivir uh, is helpful early on, like in terms of decreasing, decreasing the length of stay, but for patients who are already critically ill and would advocate using it early on, um, but not after they're very sick. Um, that's pretty much it. I do think everything else is... Uh, you know, a drop in the ocean of the care that we do, and it does not make that big of a difference. Uh, proning, definitely, as Matt said, uh, proning, we, we find that, uh, you know, for, not, for intubated patients, when P2F ratio is going in the wrong direction, somewhere between, uh, you know, 150, definitely when it's P2F ratio is less than 100, and you're up a 60, 70% of IO2. But medications, I would say just steroids at this point. So we have steroids and maybe a role for remdesivir. Carrie, you're nodding your head. Did anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to um, backtrack really quickly. The conversation about proning, for us, anybody who's COVID positive who can at all tolerate, regardless of what their oxygenation support requirements are, at least attempt to self-prone, if they can. So I had a patient in the intensive care unit, um, I don't know, last week, two weeks ago, who um, had profound morbid obesity, who for obvious reasons wouldn't tolerate true proning. Her oxygen saturations went from mid-80s up into the 90s on the same level of support with even just lateral decubitus. So I would suggest, um, I would um, echo and agree that there's patients who don't tolerate self-proning, um, but I would suggest that any kind of positional change, um, including lateral decubitus positioning, if they can tolerate that, um, I would recommend that folks give that a shot. So to come back to the, to the question about therapeutics, um, I personally, having reviewed the literature, am not a huge fan, although the, the hospital-based protocols still are including um, remdesivir um, and then the newer treatments as well, the, the one that's being done as an outpatient um, infusion. There's really nothing um, that is magic, really, except for good supportive care and steroid. So I would, I would echo and support um, what my colleagues have said, just that there's not a magic bullet for this. Um, it's a lot of supportive care and really good critical care management of these patients. Terry, when you say outpatient care, do you mean the monoclonal antibody infusions? Yes, I'm so sorry. It's got a name that like I would sound stupid if I tried to pronounce because I... <laughs> it's called bam, 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 b
Yeah, why can't they give these drugs names that doctors can say? I, <laughs> yes, but yes, that is what I'm referencing. Um, I don't think the data on that is particularly convincing, but the data on really nothing but steroid, I think, is um, strong enough. But in that being said, we're still using remdesivir on any patient who doesn't have acute kidney injury who has a normal creatinine. So, I mean, I think we're all grasping at straws, just really doing the best we can to throw the book at a, a really challenging disease process. So. One thing I wanted to ask before we move to someone else is uh, we started in New York using anticoagulation on a lot of patients, and there was some data from Mount Sinai that was beneficial. Are you are you still using that in this wave of the pandemic? Can I take yeah. this question? Yeah, hate them, please. There's no question in my mind there's a high rate of coagulopathy happening in these patients, and I mean hypercoagulopathy. And we, we've seen it in every single system in the body. However, there is data from China who had a little bit of an early take on, on this one that, that shows prophylaxis can help once you have a D-dimer that's more than three times the normal. Besides that, we have no evidence that anti full anticoagulation helps. And I'm, I want to caution people from anticoagulating everybody because we did see also a lot of bleeding. It's almost like a trauma patient. They're bleeding somewhere, coagulating somewhere else. So I think anticoagulating everybody empirically is a little bit too aggressive in my opinion. Let me jump in as the, the new MICU attending. So you're saying you do prophylactic anticoagulation once they're three times normal deep dimer. You don't just no, do no, prophylaxis on the way in the door? No, we, we do it on everybody. I'm saying there was a study from China where they do not do prophylaxis on everybody. Uh, and they compared patients who were anticoagulated, prophylactically anticoagulated, and those who were not. And they showed mortality benefit for patients who have D-dimers above three times the normal. But that's in China. Here, we anticoagulate everybody prophylactically. DVT prophylaxis. Yeah, uh, correct. DVT prophylaxis. But the point is, my point is, empirically fully anticoagulating anybody, I think is too aggressive and will lead to a lot, a lot of bleeding uh, complications, GI bleeds retroperitoneal spontaneous bleeds, which we've seen. Yeah. Hey, Tom, who do you determine gets full anticoagulation? I mean, it, obviously, if you have an ultrasound with a DVT, a CAT scan or a CTA of the chest with a PE, those are obvious. But is there anyone that you're giving full anticoagulation to just based on their numbers? Yeah, if we see that they keep clotting their lines, which is a problem we saw over uh, also as well uh, frequently, like their central lines, their arterial lines, we, we will we will anticoagulate them fully. But that's the only other indication besides what we do normally in standard of care. Yeah, now, now there have been a couple of studies, though, that have, have shown pretty significant benefits of fully anticoagulating. Now, those are retrospective either before or after, you know, before we started anticoagulating everybody versus after, or retrospective comparing full anticoag versus prophylactic dose. We, we still don't have pro, prospective data, definitely not have randomized, but, but I, I think it's very reasonable. Pick a D-dimer target. Uh, we were at above 5,000, and then we dropped that to above 3,000. And, and, I, and I, I had the exact opposite experience uh, of what Haytham's describing. I mean, we had everybody therapeutically anticoagulated, you know, with BID therapeutic Lovenox dosing and saw very few bleeding events, many more clotting events than bleeding events. Yeah, I, do, I do think the... the uh, kind of what Matt's saying, the D-dimer, <clears throat> following the D-dimer and picking a level is the right way to go. There is some retrospective studies even looking at aspirin, uh, aspirin use. I think the Maryland group published on that. But but um, I, I do want to um, go back to the uh, 
the steroid topic for a second um, before we jump on and keep going. You know, one one thing about the steroids, I do agree that if you're going to do something, do it early, whether it be, we're not even talking about the plasma infusion anymore. But for the steroids, I think one of the other things that's happening, you know, they recommend the 10 days of dosing. But I think for severe uh, COVID, uh, people are extending the steroid uh, tape or steroid treatment uh, beyond the 10 days. And solumedrol or using the merit protocol to come through is one of the things that is happening a lot more. I don't know if any of the other uh, people are doing that as well, but I think, I think the steroids, you know, the 10 day, right. You know, recommendation is not the end all be all. I do think we're extending it past 10 days for people with severe COVID. And it's one of those things that I think is the single most important trigger to help uh, slow the progress of the disease. So it's interesting too. I, I guess we're saying steroids, but I would say dexamethasone. And, and it's interesting. I mean, there's a marked difference in the literature because there were a couple of dexamethasone randomized studies. There are also those hydrocortisone randomized studies. And, and the results are markedly different. Yeah. You know, dexamethasone has the clearest signal of benefit of any drug in COVID literature. Hi, uh, you know, hydrocortisone, either no effect or small effect. So, so it's kind of interesting that there appears to be a something specific about, you know, one form of steroid versus the other, uh, you know, and then again, there was the randomized study of dexamethasone for ARDS and now showed a benefit compared to all the prior ARDS studies with no benefit, but using other steroids. So, so you got to start to wonder if there's something specific, you know, about one form of steroids versus the other. Well, I, let's get back to, we have the, now we have the intubated patient. We've tried all these medications. Um, what vent settings are people using, uh, and what, uh, difficulties and how are you troubleshooting? Carrie, you, you actively treating patients, you have a strategy you use on them? Yeah, I think that we are initially tolerating and allowing for high FiO2 probably longer than most of us are comfortable for only because these patients don't seem to tolerate or well, really don't seem to tolerate high levels of PEEP and they don't necessarily benefit the higher you drive their PEEP up. There's a handful of them that will tolerate APRV. Many of them don't um, for reasons that I don't know that we really clearly understand. Um, and so my strategy always is as soon as they get intubated, they go on 100% FiO2 and I'll kind of gently increase the PEEP. While I'm doing that, I will absolutely tolerate stats in the high 80s because there's really no hard and fast you cannot come out swinging hard on these patients for any on anything. Everything that they tolerate, the only thing that they tolerate really ever, are very small incremental changes. Um, so I'll put them on 100% FiO2, and I'll start at a peep of 10 to 12, and I, I will maybe go up to about 16. But what we find on these patients almost universally is that they don't seem to derive a benefit from increasing and increasing and increasing the peep. Um, and ultimately, their um, pips and plateaus, but really their plateau pressures, will get elevated to the point where they don't tolerate big tidal volumes or big peep. Um, and then you end up having to paralyze them um, and, and drop their, their tidal volumes down. So it, it just becomes a problem of stiff lungs that don't necessarily benefit from excessive peep. So I'll start with 100% FiO2 and a peep of 10 to 12. I'll get them on inhaled nitric, and I'll get them prone. And the combination of those things, usually I don't end up having to continually escalate their oxygenation settings on the vent. Usually you can get them to, if they're going to stabilize, they will stabilize within the first 24 hours with kind of moderate vent setting. You know, in New York, we had 
very limited nitric, so that's not something we could use on everybody. Uh, we had a lot of difficulties with vent synchrony, dyssynchrony, a lot of issues with sedation. I really liked APRV on some patients, but not everybody, especially in a surge ICU, knows how to manage it, so that wouldn't be continued from one shift to the other very well. Uh, Bilal, do you have anything to add or, or how to address some of these difficulties in managing vent to COVID patients? No, I, I kind of, I mean, being in Arizona as well, we kind of, I think like room, you know, a strategy spread quickly. We kind of in the same way, uh, Carrie's, uh, discussing, I do think, you know, uh, minimizing the, you know, the disease physio pathophysiology we think is some sort of fibrosis and anything you can do to reduce the barrel trauma on these patients to not only care for them at the moment, but for the long term is critical. And that's stuff that we've learned, you know, over and over. And again, it's just good critical care techniques uh, to to assure. I think minimizing, the other thing is minimizing, although it's not direct vent management, but minimizing uh, crystalloid and diuresing the heck out of these patients. I mean, like, you know, negative liter, two liters a day as much as possible to the point where you, you got them going until they're BUN and create and take a bump. Like, I really think aggressive diuresis is a third part of the lung strategy that really needs to be uh, used, which is, you know, very different than our, our thinking. But I mean, what I always say is raisins, not grapes. So, Haytham or, or Matt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, actually, we had a little bit different way of doing it. I mean, what and what we did on every single patient uh, who's who's in ARDS and intubated, we did a best PEEP trial. So we kept, you know, we increasing the PEEP and uh, or decreasing the PEEP high level. And whenever your PA to FIO two ratio kind of go down uh, less than 20%, and not every time we measure the ABGs, but you know you measure the compliance as well. Whenever, that was the best P trial. And what we found is it differs from patient to patient and tends to be a little bit lower than what you think. So we rarely went above 10 or 12, as, uh, as you guys said. Uh, and then we actually, nitric oxide, we did not use it on everybody. We actually uh, are the center where we reported the early results of nitric oxide. But we did have a protocol that that involves right before you uh, you uh, um, right after prone patients. If you're still not where you need to be, is where we need nitric oxide. But we also use it on pregnant patients. So there's data that on pregnant patients in particular, uh, it was very helpful. Um, and then and then proning for the event management, we don't use APRC at Mass General. It, don't ask me why, but it is. Uh, uh, a long-standing history of refusing APRV at the respiratory uh, uh, therapy level, department <laughs> level. Uh, but what we did, we did the ARDSnet protocol, just uh, what you know, low tidal volumes, and uh, and we tolerated the even invented patients. Our goal was always 90 to 92 percent saturation, which is what the randomized control trial, not in COVID-19, but in ARDS or even in an in all intubated patients had showed that this actually there's mortality benefit of aiming for a lower oxygenation level than what we usually do. Yeah, and, and two caveats for APRV. I, I like APRV. Um, you know, I, is there any difference between standard modality, ARDSnet protocol? Maybe, maybe not. But uh, two things. One is you can ventilate them with a lot of high-level support without paralytics, almost universal APRV. Whereas most of the patients who aren't doing great with standard men, they had to be paralyzed. And if you're, so if, you, if you're overwhelmed with COVID, you are going to be out of paralytic drift like we've seen here, like we saw in New York. And then the other caveat, if you're on APRV, is you have to pay attention to the tidal volume. And, and you'll find that, like, you know, when, when you're rounding and they report all the settings with APRV, 
Nobody reports the time. They tell you, see high, see low, see low. And like, like I came in, we had an APRV patient and looked at the tidal volume, and it was 1,200 cc's per breath. And, and so people will lose track of, you can really over-descend somebody on APRV and kind of not realize it. Nobody's thinking about the tidal volume. Just to add into that, Matt, I think the flip side to that, number one, at least in, in our clinical experience, I would say probably 80 to 90% of patients who are fresh intubations don't tolerate APRV either from the standpoint of becoming profoundly hemodynamically unstable or having issues with oxygenation. I'm sure you probably have seen this too. Some patients for reasons that I, or, you know, a smarter person than me would have to discern just don't seem to tolerate APRV as a modality. Um, but I would, I would also say that we run into a lot of trouble where in, in aggressively treating the, the hypoxia with APRV will tolerate permissive hypercapnia, but a lot of these patients, as their lungs get stiffer, they just stop ventilating. And you run out of room on permissive hypercapnia strategies, and then the pH is down to 7.0 something because they're retaining CO2. So, And that usually happens a couple days in. So I think APRV, I think used in the right patients and used for the initial part of the intubation probably is a good strategy for the right patient. What we see is that they eventually hit a wall where they just stop ventilating um, and then their their pressures are high and their, their pH goes down. Um, and so then we have to switch them back off to conventional mode ventilation and paralyze them. But I love that. I love that strategy and I think it works really well um, in certain patients. I would just add to a patient who's ventilating on APRV uh, and their mental status is a way to monitor uh, their their uh, CO2 is, is very nice. Once they stop having mental status and not breathing on your own, it's very challenging. I was just going to say, as a lighthearted comment, um, one of my favorite attendings in fellowship used to say, if you want to see a battle of giants, get six intensivists at a bar, give them some beer, and then ask the question, what's the best vent management? So, Can I please? ask two questions? One, on the vent side, is anyone using Flowland? Uh, if you're not using nitric, are you using Flowland at all? Yes, we we yeah. at Script we use that way more than nitric, and, and I yeah. think one it's supply and cost issue. Yeah, and then the other yeah. question I had for therapeutics, since we talked about it and we're moving past it, was: Is anyone using uh, or putting these patients on vitamin D, uh, or using any of the vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C type things as well? We're not, but I think that's coming. Yeah, I actually just saw a study today. I think they're they're trying to figure out. The it, it still is being evaluated in the literature, and we're not doing it empirically right now. But I think that's going to be the next kind of steroid of COVID, um, yeah. in the sense of I, something that shows potential for promise. I think every time I see vitamins and the critically ill patients, I start thinking pixie dust. <laughs> well, you don't use APRV, so you really can't talk about anything else. You've lost all of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, but it, if you look at the vitamin D dust. literature. I mean, there's, there's a randomized trial. I mean, the vitamin D, five to 10,000 units a day. I mean, for people who are deficient, there is definitely something there. I agree. I just, I don't know if it's become standard, but I do think it's something to put in our radars of where it's coming. It is, there is been a lot of noise on the vitamin D. To transition off of the, the vent, you know, we don't have ECMO in my institution. And in New York, we were so saturated, there was no possibility to transfer. I'm just wondering when to people decide to use ECMO on these patients? So we, uh, we put, I, I believe, about 15 patients on ECMO at Mass General. And uh, the, our protocol was very clear. P, P to F ratio less than 100 and going in the wrong direction 
despite optimization of everything, meaning they're proning, proning they had a nitric oxide trial and they, they did not improve after that, and we're still going in the wrong direction, then we, uh, you know, we put them on ECMO. We did have uh, quite a few survivals. I don't remember the exact number of survivors of ECMO, but I think the, the early results of that were published in the Annals of Surgery. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say, you know, in, in fantasy land, if I had unlimited resources, unlimited access to ECMO, it would be as soon as I got to a point that I was having to prone somebody, I would put them on ECMO. I, I mean, the, the, the ECMO outcome numbers for COVID are so striking, you know, compared to, you know, failing vent modes and increasing vent support. So if you could do it on everybody, you know, when they're getting to that point, I would put them all on ECMO if I had the resources. But otherwise, similar to HAPIS, it's that patient who's heading in the wrong direction and, and, you know, has a reasonable chance of survival. You know, in other words, they're they're not 80 years old. They don't don't have every medical problem imaginable and and they'll tolerate, you know, ECMO and, and anticoagulation if needed. Uh, we had we had uh, you know one of our workers, uh, respiratory therapist, who went down hard with COVID and got put on ECMO for five weeks, uh, and and walk you know walked home out of the hospital. Uh, I just think right. it, it's a shame we don't have enough of those resources. And I do I do share Matt's experience. I mean I I went on the vlo- to the floor with two patients. That I put myself on ECMO and I thought they're gonna die, not gonna go well. And I went there when they had recovered and then about to go to rehab. Uh, and you know, because we remember, I mean, oh. the, the reason we're putting them on ECMO is a self-limited disease. Meaning, you know, you get them through the hump of the two weeks of of bad COVID, and then suddenly they just come off it and they come off it very fast. Yeah, I think also the criteria of not only of like, you know, what criteria, but the who, you know, the situation your hospital's in, you know, have you, you know, where, what level of, of resource are you using? I think that's another uh, trigger that kind of has really helped kind of decide who gets the resources or not. But I think the who is a big thing here in Arizona. We have a lot of older patients making it different than uh, some of the other reported areas, but that's kind of where... Uh, we've kind of sat with it. All right. Just to highlight and pick up some of the other threads that have already been mentioned, um, these patients, at least in our clinical experience, do very well on ECMO. And also, just to echo what Bilal just said, the issue that we're running into now is that while we would love to put all of these patients on, what what folks in the general public don't seem to understand is, at least at our major urban academic center, we've been closed to ECMO for lack of nursing staff um, repeatedly over the last month. Um, and so again, a, a major resource distribution issue. And this, this is a different disease. I don't, I don't know if everybody saw the arrest trial results that just came out. Ra- randomized trial for pre-hospital cardiac arrest, ECMO versus standard. And again, you know, these are patients who arrived dead, arrested in the hospital. And the survival, it was like, it was like, 30 to 40% versus 6%. I mean, just so, you know, so again, the, you know, ECMO and extracorporeal perfusion strategies, I, I think, are going to play a much larger role in, in a lot of areas. And, and hopefully that means expanded resources. So if we have something like this, we have more patients we can use it on. Well, let's say you had a patient that uh, responded, stabilized on the vent. Um, early on, there was a lot of reluctance to do tracheostomy, uh, concern about exposure. But uh, eventually, in my institution, I insisted on using a capper and an N95 at the same time. But having that a precaution, 
we weren't even waiting for negative tests. We were just doing tracheostomies at the standard timing of sort of seven to 10 days when appropriate if the patient was stable. How are other institutions uh, approaching tracheostomy in COVID patients? Carrie, if you're actively doing this again, do you have a, a strategy you're using? So what I was saying is um, we did the exact, we were initially doing the exact same thing, which was waiting for um, the COVID test to, to convert to seronegative so that we could proceed with the trach. We're not doing that anymore. Um, the, um, the, the primary issue is that at no point in the first couple of weeks are the majority of these super sick COVID patients on ventilator settings where they would permit transition off of you know, the, the exchange of an ET tube or the exchange of the, you know, a, a definitive airway. Um, because once they de-recruit, again, they, they go down really hard. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these patients are, are ending up waiting weeks until they are um, on ventilator settings that are safe enough that they would even tolerate um, ET tube exchange. So, that's the one kind of caveat. I, I know that there's the Italian study that says that perk trach is, is safe and we are doing those. But... To me, just intuitively, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, I would prefer to do open trachs in all these patients if I could, only because you minimize the time where you're lacking positive pressure ventilation. You also minimize, minimize um, the aerosolization. Um, so I don't know that there's really hard evidence that's, that's definitive. And I think it's kind of a local practice pattern that, that is defining what we're doing right now. I would only add that when we did perk trachs, we were doing this NYU technique of using the, the scope outside of the ET tube and advancing the ET tube. It minimizes the interruption of the ventilatory circuit and of the aerosolization. How about uh, uh, Bilal or anybody else uh, have anything to add on to that? We're, we're doing, we're doing uh, trachs. We're doing them while they're COVID positive. We'll, we'll do them even on relatively high support, like up to 70% FiO2. We, we decided to do them open in the OR, controlled scenario. Uh, a lot of times we're doing it in combination with a PEG. And, 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 and again, I think COVID is going to be one disease where we show a clear benefit of early trach, you know, at least as early as they'll tolerate it. And, and I've been amazed at just seeing the turnaround, you know, after we trach them and then they're, they're off the sedation, uh, you know, and, and a couple of days later they're on minimal vent support or even, uh, you know, on trach masks it's been pretty remarkable because these are patients that I said the same thing. Well, you know, they're on high level vent sport. This is just going to be a different tube they're going to use. It's not going to make much of a difference. So, so I've been pretty impressed with the outcomes of tracheostomy, but like, like we heard, it, it's your institution dependent. Some places it'll be open in the, in the ICU is best open in the ORs. What we found was best perk in the ICU, uh, you know, whatever works best for your institution. And uh, I'm doing it with an N95 and face shield. Uh, some people are wearing pappers. There have probably been like five or six studies now published of trachs and COVID, and and has yet to be a report of somebody catching or, or you know uh, COVID from the procedure. And and three three additional points to to add to that very quickly. Uh, the first one is is related to the um, to when we do them. We did them at two weeks, but I kind of agree. The amount of sedation that you needed for these patients can definitely be improved. And I, I, I bet if we do a trial on that, we'll show improved outcome with even earlier tracking than that. We did all of them percutaneous in the ICU. Uh, some of us did them without bronchoscopic guidance, which is not our standard. We do all of them with bronchoscopic guidance just to minimize. But most of us did them with bronchoscopic guidance. And in terms of risk of transmission, 
I tell you, uh, we went through a whole fight with, um, with, uh, with, you know, at our institutional leadership because we wanted to get papers early on to do these to increase our protection from 95 to 99%. And I have to humbly admit that I, I came around because the point that they were, they, they made, and that's the highest level of ID people is you do get a 4% improved in protection. But, you know, from the experience in Ebola and in other areas of the world, the, the cumbersome, um, uh, you know, kind of procedure of putting, donning and doffing the poppers tends to increase that risk and more than, um, than result in increased overall risk for, for, the, uh, for the individual providers doing it. So we did all of them with just N95 and face shields and uh, regular PPE. And I, I, I don't know how many we did. I'm, I'm going to assume about 50 trachs, maybe 60 trachs. And it's only the seven or eight of us uh, who are the trauma ICU and, and none of us got it. Uh, I'm not saying that's clear science, but I'm just saying none of us got it. You know, one thing I think that, you know, Haitha mentions the seven or eight people. What we did is we created a trach team. There was one or two surgeons, one or two scrub techs, one or two nurses. I mean, it was a, it was a team that knew each other, knew how to do it, knew how to make it flow. Uh, and I think that that in addition to whether you do the N95, the face shield or the PAPR, I think having the right people who do it all the time and they get into this rhythm, it makes a huge difference for this as well. And, you know, if you look at the ENT literature on this, they're very clear that they're, you know, they want PAPRs and want to be, you know, in the OR and they want, I mean, their guidelines are very different than, you know, our more lax. I think, again, we're still learning, but I, I do think having the same people doing these procedures instead of these random uh, makes a huge difference for this. You know, we talked about getting into the OR. Have other practice patterns in the OR or utilization uh, changed? Uh, I would just say for our trauma, like our urgent emergent trauma laparotomies and whatnot, I mean, the unknown COVID patient has definitely, we have a, you know, like a specific room that we go to that. You know, there's a one-way entrance that doesn't have a lot of the things in it. Uh, that's definitely changed our uh, efficiency. Not the unknown trauma patient who could be COVID for penetrating or blunt. I think that that has definitely changed our efficiency. Um, the, there's a lot of we've we've experienced a lot of COVID unknowns, like um, you know, young college students who come in with appendicitis, and then you know, they go. Oh, two days ago, my my roommate was positive. We've you know, and then all of a sudden, you test them, and they're positive. But I don't think we've really changed much of our approach. We've used the filters on the bovi and whatnot. But overall, it's an N95 face shield, and and just going forward with the case. Yeah, in our institution, we have a a COVID positive or COVID questionable room if there's not a test in time that has a uh, you know uh, negative pressure and the HEPA filter. Um, does anyone else have any other OR practice pattern changes at their institution? For uh, for COVID positive patients that we had to do surgery on them, we do have this half an hour uh, where like after intubation that we waste in the OR. Basically, only the anesthesia team in the OR, they intubate and then we wait half an hour and then everybody comes in after that with full PPE. So that's the, the only thing. So for us, yeah. anybody that can wait a half an hour? Um, we're actually just waiting for the test because we can get our results back in about 45 minutes. Um, anyone who can't wait if they're emergent, EGS, or trauma, um, we just go to a negative pressure room, intubate, bring them over to the OR, and then everyone just, like uh, Bilal described, like mask, face shield, full on. We just assume they have it. And, and I'm glad we do that. It seemed annoying at first, but 
I was in the middle of a trauma case at X lab uh, for a splenectomy and a nurse popped her head in and said, Hey, by the way, he's positive. And this kid had like no symptoms, nothing before he got shot. There's a little bit of a schizophrenic approach too, because, you know, we're, we're treating the intubated COVID patient like they're, you know, nuclear waste, you know, and everybody's suited up in astronaut suits and, and the not intubated coughing patient, you know, like there's something safer when it should be the opposite. Right. And, and uh, we, we had that other, that whole debate, just like, hey, some about, you know, innovate, we wait 20 or 30 minutes. And, and again, it came back to, well, are we doing that for a COVID patient who's not innovated and coughs a couple times? No. So, you know, it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. Where, where you know, your PPE, treat them like they're COVID positive, but, you know, proceed with the case. And, and we have a COVID OR too, but it's off on the other side. And it's a nightmare if we have somebody who is sick and, you know, you need things. Because everything you ask for, you know, they're writing it on a board and passing it back and forth, and it, you know, takes forever. So, so truly, you know, unstable trauma patients, we're avoiding using that room and just bringing them up to our usual trauma OR with full precaution. Uh, but these COVID ORs for something that's urgent, I mean, they're they're miserable. Any other uh, practice pattern changes in terms of trauma criteria or, or otherwise to help manage the census, making room for uh, more critically ill COVID patients? We have we have a uh, accelerated triage, like we use our brain injury guidelines for minimal TBIs, you know, spine fractures. We have a rib score that we've implemented, so we can, you know, triage a lot of these patients that we would keep for, you know, comfort or pain and whatnot out. So, and we do a lot of televisits once we discharge them within 48 hours to assure that they're not needing. So we we've kind of implemented, you know. Grade three, you know, grade two spleen, sorry, or grade one. Uh, a lot of what we call fast pass for transfers and for uh, early triage out of the trauma base. Yeah, I like the use of, of uh, telehealth. We have not implemented that for our trauma patients. Anyone else has something to add on from their institution? I'm sure this is a ridiculous question, Bilal, but I'm hoping you guys will publish that because I think our community would be really interested to see what you guys are doing. For sure. We, you know, we actually... Believe it or not, all the trauma centers in Arizona, there's six of us, uh, or the Banner Network, we've kind of put together some triage. But down here in Tucson, we've created our own. I We weren't thinking of publishing, but I can talk to one of our my younger faculty. I could put it all together, and we've just been using it. It's been great. I'd like this documented as the first time in history that Bilal Joseph was not planning on publishing something. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Hey, that's that's what having a baby will do for you. No, and I mean that with love. You guys have been so productive, and it's really it's good for everyone. It's good for the community. Thanks. Well, uh, Carrie Valdez, I've run out of questions. Do you have anything else that uh, you want to add on or ask before we wrap it up? Um, only one question. I can't remember if it was Matt or Bilal who said, we're not even talking about plasma anymore. Are you not transfusing oh, yeah. plasma? Is that, is, that, is that old school? I mean, we're still doing it. Convalescent serum? We're still doing it. I think it's changing. Uh, we, I think, you know, it used to be the the trifecta. You'd come in, you'd get plasma, you, the convalescent plasma, you'd get remdesivir, you'd get steroids. I do think that the antibodies have changed that practice. If you've already developed, depending, you know, Haifa mentioned time to treatment earlier. Time is everything, you know, when they present, how many days has it been? I don't think there's a real benefit if, you know, the patients already have their own antibodies. So I think all of that is part of it. I mean, I'm just listening here and chuckling inside myself of how much we still don't know and how much we're still kind of doing, you know, our own recipes of what we think works and doesn't work. And we have a long way to go. I think, you know, we got our first shipment of vaccines this week. 
it's going to change everything and maybe slow down our ability to understand this. But at the, but that's good because more people, less people will be hurt. Yeah, in preparation for this trauma cast, I listened to the previous four trauma casts we did last spring. And like remdesivir was still a trial drug. Like nobody could get it. And everyone I thought that this was going to be the like ultimate, just can't wait for it to come out drug. And now we just have the WHO study. It's like, nope, didn't work. Sorry. <laughs> so what, one uh, question I did have. So now that I'm in the medical ICU, I'm kind of at the front of the line to get a vaccine. And I was curious about your institutions, how they are kind of sorting out who gets it. And then I got an email that's like, yes, everybody in the MICU should get it, but we have to stagger you guys so that we don't have 50% of our, our workforce get a mild fever, which is a normal expected side effect. How are you guys sorting out who's going to get it? When do you get it? Do you get in line? Like, what are your strategies? I mean, for us, it's basically frontline workers are coming first, you know, essential, like, uh, housekeeping, what, all the things that keep the hospital functioning. And it, but to the to your point, although we're all in this master list that we're the front line, right? Within the front line, there's like distribution, and it's not all going to happen at the same time. So I do think they have a. I think everyone's still learning on how to uh, to do it. Yeah, our our system is prioritizing by really two main things. One is you know the the frequency and intensity of COVID contact, uh, but also by you know the frequency and intensity of exposure to potential COVID patients that aren't diagnosed yet. Mm. Uh, so, so, you know, so example, you would think, you know, COVID ICU would come first, but everybody who goes up there has a known diagnosis and they're being treated with precaution. And the, and the ER is seeing all of these patients when you have no idea and some of them turn up positive, some of them don't, you know, they, they aren't all in isolation. So, so at least at our place, so the priority is, is going to be ED, then ICU, ICU and ED and personnel who are treating emergencies down there, which includes trauma. Uh, and then the ICU and the COVID ward, and, and then L, and then the OR, of course. And again, that's the frequent contact, but also because that's your hospital's money maker. So you, know, <laughs> you, you got to get that running up pretty soon. And then the other areas. The, the one interesting thing is, and I've seen that the knives are already out. You know, e everybody is trying to push to the front line, saying, "Well, we're critical." And, you know, we handle COVID patients, you know, again, the pathologists and the geriatricians. So I actually feel bad for kind of our, our C-suite, uh, you know, of having to deal with this, of, of everybody saying, no, we should be at the front of the line. Right, sir. I think your tweet today, Matt, on Lord of the Flies distribution of vaccine was spot on. <laughs> For the reasons that Matt mentioned, though, I'm perfectly okay, despite the fact that I do the majority of my clinical time in the in the COVID intensive care unit. I'm perfectly okay with those who are dealing with an unknown COVID risk factor um, or seeing patients that have an unknown diagnosis going first. I don't, I mean, we're in there, we've got a reasonable supply of PPE and we're dealing with a known, you know, in, in patients who are on closed circuit ventilation in negative pressure rooms with reasonable amounts of PPE. I don't, there's no reason for this to turn into a, a shoving match. So it's curious. So now I, I had gotten kind of comfortable being at the hospital because I would on occasion have a patient who had a trauma or ETS case. And I have my little, I don't know, alcohol spray bottle in the garage, but I wasn't too hyper concerned. But now that I've redeployed into the MICU and the majority of my patients are serious sick COVID pneumonia, what do, what do you guys do when you come home? Like, do you do the whole strip in the garage, grab a robe, run upstairs and shower, decontaminate? Are you just like, listen, this is what it means to be married to me? Like, what are your kind of like 
personal practices for staying safe. I would shower and change in the hospital and then shower and change again at home. Wow. Oh, Are you still doing that? No, I'm not taking care of COVID patients like that anymore. Oh, yeah. I think the same thing. If I had if I had exposure to COVID, I usually change my scrubs and shower at the hospital prior to leaving and do the same thing getting home, you know. But you bring up a very I mean, when I got COVID, you know, coming home and I got my wife and my kid and you know, we're in this same house with like four rooms and it's really hard to isolate unless you're in a different building or in a hotel room. I mean, it's just it's not as easy as you people think it is. Just oh, you know, I think the most important thing really is the mask when you really sitting in that high you know you're really where you may have contracted it or you have it. a mask is everything in my mind but other than that it's hard to to, to have any real protection for your family but well before you got sick did you wear a mask at home then no no that was the thing no just this sorry you're married to me that's how it goes well not even i mean i just tried my hardest to assure that i was you know doing the things i said changing and and then I mean, it's just hard when you have a one-year-old who, you know, I, you know, sees you. And unless you don't come home, there's really hard, you know, and that's the right. thing. A lot of people have sent their families to places. They've gone to different places. But to be in the same house, it's very difficult. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about it. So, Carrie, what do you do when you get home? How do you, how do you stay safe? So, I, I think most of us who are in contact with us on a daily basis are doing um, some toned-down version of what every the extremists Thing that everyone was doing, which was showering twice or, sh- you know, stripping in the garage before you walk in and shower, running into the shower. And I think we, we have a little bit better understanding at this point that that's not necessarily how it's transmitted. So what I do generally just more as a precaution is change my scrubs before I come home. I take off anything that's dirty and I leave it kind of in a corner of the house um, away from everybody else. Um, and I try and, you know, shower before I'm in contact with anything but I'm, I'm much more relaxed about it now because as long as I'm wearing a, a, a face mask and really doing the best that I can to distance and wash my hands and just use good basic hygiene, that's all that I'm doing. And luckily, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think I've exposed anybody yet. So Yeah, we used to, I remember, uh, well, this first all hit and we thought the surge was coming because Grand Rapids is equidistant between Detroit and Chicago. And so that John Hopkins map, the circles were even bigger and bigger and bigger. We were waiting for the, the two circles to converge. I sent my my children and my husband to my parents' place, and then I was coming home, and I like I don't know if you guys remember this, but I would use like um, laundry pins to clip my mask in my oven and like bake my mask every night. Like, that's where we used to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm just like, oh, I take care of patients. You're at home. It's cool. Whatever. How about you, Matt? Do you do anything different? You used to be uh, pretty strict about uh, your hygiene. No, no, nothing. No, I mean. We, we generally will shower and change, definitely change scrubs and everything before leaving the hospital mm-hmm. uh, and, and essentially bathe myself in hand sanitizer, too. <laughs> uh, I think my, my blood alcohol is probably a continuous 0.07 at least, <laughs> just from all the, all the hand sanitizer I use and cover Mine's myself. Mine's a spritzer, and I'm always like, it's my eau de toilette, and it just spritz everything that's <laughs> exposed. But Matt, are you bathing in the one that smells like tequila? I know. I need to get that one. Can you send me some? <laughs> I'll tell you what's what's going to be interesting, and and I have yet to hear any system and how they're going to handle this. Is we have a significant number of providers, nurses, and doctors that are saying they're not going to take the vaccine. Hmm. And 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 I, and I'll be interested to see how some of the health systems handle that. 
you know, they're going to let them come to work or required for work, you know, like the other things we're required to do. We, we, we haven't heard anything about what their plans are here for that. Well, so at least for our institution, it's not required because it's technically still considered experimental. And you can't require your workforce to take an experimental drug. So there's no fallback. Just, I mean, obviously, the, other than fallback and the increased risk of actually getting sick, but there's no, like, you must do this or that. I can, I would be willing to bet um, a case of your favorite beer that this is this is going to be the the next flu vaccine. This is going to be the very next thing. It's absolutely as soon as it is remotely feasible for hospitals to start mandating it. I think they're going to start mandating it. And there's going to be significant consequences for folks who don't get it. I think it's just going to be a long, hard effort of good public health education to get even healthcare professionals on board with the vaccine. And I think there's a lot of people that had not entirely unreasonable concerns just because of how fast these vaccines came about, um, that they're waiting for, you know, phase four and waiting for the first 2 million, 3 million vaccines to be administered before they're going to be willing to jump in line for that. So it's not that it's not understandable um, to some degree, but I, I do think that absolutely as soon as it is remotely feasible, it will be the exact same thing as you you are not allowed to be employed in this building unless you have your COVID vaccine. But like, for example, like, like I got COVID, I went through my course, should I get the vaccine right now? You know, or should I wait? Should I let others get it? I mean, it's just, it's a real question. Like, should I take a chance now? Or should I wait six months after a million people have gotten it since I've already gotten COVID and I'm, you know, I've gone through all the other sides of it. So yeah, and Car- and I agree with that, Carrie. Uh, when and if it gets back to normal, uh, you know, but the other issue driving that now is there is a huge staffing shortage, especially of nurse and, a, you know, a system that says, well, you have to have the vaccine or you can't work here. Well, okay, you know, I'll go work somewhere else. And, you know, nurses are getting six to $10,000 a week plus expenses to go to some of these COVID areas and the hospital still can't find enough of them. So, so, so my, you know, my suspicion is that's going to play a big part into some systems saying, well, we're not going to require it because we're already short staffed and, and can't get nurses. And, you know, more are going to say, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. They've got a lot more power than, than the usual scenario. That's a, that's a really good point. The one thing that I think has been underappreciated that I've, I don't know, maybe tried unsuccessfully to be pretty vocal about on social media is that the underappreciated next wave of this pandemic is going to be a mass exodus out of the bedside. I've had multiple conversations with ICU nurses who have a total combined bedside experience of up to 50 years. If you, I talked to three or four of them together who have never in their history considered leaving the bedside who are, are on their way out the door. I think the conditions in healthcare pre, pre-pandemic were problematic and to some considered to be pretty abusive at baseline. And I think that the nurses especially have been continued to be abused and now getting it on all sides, both from healthcare administration, but also from, you know, civilians in the, you know, the disrespect and the harassment that folks are getting for telling the truth about what's happening in our hospitals. I think to speak to Matt's point, that's going to be the next the next big issue is going to be five years, 10 years down the road. Will there be any experienced ICU physicians or nurses left? And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's just, to me right now, it does not look particularly hopeful. Yeah, healthcare has changed and it will change. And the old way we knew it is not going to be, I, I agree. I mean, I saw some stuff about, you know, how RVUs define us, but what we're doing has no RVU value. And it's just one of those things we got to get back to. 
healthcare systems need to understand that being invested in your people is just as important as, as any of that stuff. So. Well, maybe that will be the topic of our next podcast. I mean, that's not like there's, there's a lot to unpack right there. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, I'd be happy to to jump in on that one uh, for the next one, just because I think that the moral injury and the burnout is, is probably worthy of a whole separate conversation. I'm jotting that down, Carrie. Moral injury and burnout. That's going to be our uh, a topic. Let's do it. All right, let me do my closing. Thank you, everybody, for coming to the TraumaCast this morning on a Saturday. I really appreciate your time and, and your cars and your offices. And it's kind of fun to see everybody <laughs> in their own space. This will be published shortly. And uh, I look forward to talking to you all again. Thanks, Carrie. Good luck. Thanks, Carrie. Hey, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mike. Thank Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Abram. And of course, to our uh, TraumaCast uh, moderator, Simon, thank you very much and a lovely job. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.